Welcome back, everyone, to the Crypto 101 podcast. It is Pizza Mind here, and it is a new year. Not sure yet if it's going to be happy, sad, miserable, or chaotic. Probably a lot of uh, the same as the past four years. Could this be 2020 part four? I don't know. That doesn't even make any sense. It's only 2023. Uh, oh, God. This, this life is I heard it's me. been a decade already. Uh, it feels like it. You know, one year in crypto ages you like dog years. Joined with me today is Jay Chris, another veteran of uh, life experience here, especially in Web3. Uh, Chris Anderson, better known on Twitter as Jay Chris. Welcome to the Crypto 101 podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Super happy to be here. It's an honor. It's a great audience. And I've, I love listening to your show. So happy to be here. Uh, really appreciate it. We love our audience too. They are great. Um, really appreciate everyone who comes up to say hello throughout the world travels and conferences and everything. Uh, and if you do see me or Bryce, you know, please do come wide and say hello. And that goes for Jay Chris as well. Uh, give us the background on who you are, what you're doing, how you got into this space. You've got quite the impressive resume. And you won't say so oh, unless I you. put you on the spot. So <laughs> give us, give us well, the whole I'm rundown. I'm really enjoying what I'm doing now because it's in line with the peer-to-peer principles that animated my career from the beginning. So I got started with Apache CouchDB that turned into Couchbase. And there I built the mobile Couchbase. I was the architect of that team. And uh, for instance, one of the things that they use it for now is the crew scheduling on United Airlines, which is one of the reasons that United doesn't lose track of their crew like we've seen with some of the other airlines. Um, so I'm proud of that. <laughs> and then these days uh, at Web3 Storage, I'm uh, working on making IPFS and Filecoin a centralized storage network easier and cheaper to use than the incumbent cloud providers. So that it's not just that you need to use it because it does some cool peer-to-peer crypto stuff. But also, you need to use it because if you don't use it, the other guy's going to get his out- app out faster than you did or whatever. And as a role as an experience engineer or whatever fancy titles you guys have over there, what is exactly your day-to-day job? So I split my time about evenly between uh, the engineers and the community. I spend a lot of time working with new feature development and making sure that it's aligned with the roadmap, which comes mostly from our CTO, Michael Rogers, and then the ease of use, which is like, I just can't stop myself on that side. So I try to distill down what we're putting out into a way that minimizes the number of new metaphors that people have to pick up, right? It just feels like making a React app. Uh, we all know how to do that. And so it opens up the audience for development to anyone who can do DAP front ends. They're able to add storage to their app. Nice. Well, I'm a big believer in Web3, as many of our listeners know. Uh, and storage is such a critical component for it. We've seen a few times when Amazon's S3 buckets go down and literally a quarter of the internet will drop offline with it, which is just ridiculous. Um, Yet I don't think there's been enough change in that design simply just because booting up on Amazon is so easy. What do we need to do to get more developers using the Web3 tools we've created, like decentralized cloud compute, like IPFS, And we'll talk a little bit more in a second just about what those are. But first and foremost, how do we convince people to make the leap and actually use the stuff that's been built so far? First of all, like I mentioned, making it easier and cheaper than the incumbent clouds. 
So that, for instance, if you have an app that goes viral, but you ship it in user pays mode, maybe it's still free for you to be the app developer. And you can imagine that allows whole new kinds of applications to get into the marketplace that otherwise wouldn't be you know, commercially viable. So I think it changes the app landscape, makes it easier for somebody to address a real audience with their app. Interesting. Tell us what exactly is IPFS? Sure. Now that's the other leap. I think if you're going to start developing with these new Web3 tools like IPFS, then you probably already understand some of the importance of data verifiability, verification, uh, cryptographic integrity, the stuff that we take for granted in the blockchain. And IPFS does that by default because every data item in IPFS is block addressed by the cryptographic hash of the block. So uh, that means all writes are immutable. It's right once and then that block is there. So you can always trust that data to be the same when you go to reference it. That property is why IPFS was picked. You know, we, we were just doing our thing and then IPFS was picked by the NFT community as being a good fit for NFT assets because of that cryptographic integrity and verifiability. But at a really, really high level, like what actually is it? Sure, sure. It's a place you put your data. And once it's in there, your data is anywhere. Because now that you're addressing your stuff by those IPFS uh, cryptographic identifiers, the content IDs, you're able to request it from the network and whoever gives it to you first wins. In that sense, it overcomes those problems we talked about with S3. So for instance, there are some IPFS uh, hosts that use S3, but there's others that don't. And if you're putting out the request by the IPFS address, whoever's available can service the request. And so the entire peer-to-peer network can be incentivized to make your problem, you know, go away. Oh God, I didn't even think that there could be a bunch of IPFS nodes actually using S3 and Amazon. What a joke. Oh yeah, joke. people do everything. <laughs> well, that's what us. What a joke. Um, it, it's and, terrible, and the but reason we do it's it not it just way. IPFS. Like there's a bunch of Ethereum nodes <laughs> that are running on centralized clouds as well. It, it It's crazy. We, we built a serverless IPFS implementation. And so you install it in a cloud and it just acts like a big IPFS node, but it provides to the other peers in the same peer-to-peer protocol. And we did that because we want, this is again about making it faster, cheaper, easier to use than uh, the incumbent clouds. We want your users, when they're uploading their profile photos and their NFTs and their chat messages, for it to be blazing. And so the only way to do that is to um, use Cloudflare at the edge for you know, super fast caching and use a AWS or an Azure onboarding you know, data processing tool chain to index the blocks as they're uploaded. So we build you know, the most advanced IPFS implementation, and it's all open source. So we've got other folks also picking it up and running other copies of it. So you're able to use IPFS without some of the old performance and scalability kind of um, challenges that people may have experienced in the past. That's wild. Can you explain to me the difference between IPFS, Filecoin, and Protocol Labs? Oh, that's a great question. So, and I'm not the expert exactly, but from my vantage point, IPFS came first, right? It's this groundbreaking technology. And they started the startup around it, Protocol Labs. Uh, And then Protocol Labs realized that crypto would be a great way to incentivize people to provide data to the IPFS network. So Filecoin 
is like a backend for IPFS. You can run IPFS without running Filecoin and vice versa, but they play really well together. You can think of Filecoin as like the glacier layer for the data that's in IPFS. Mm, good, good analogy. You know, you've as someone who's really done a lot of research into open source and development and stuff, what do you think about the sudden growth of AI? Is this a trend in crypto that's going to be here today and gone tomorrow? Or is this finally something that like, is getting a spotlight that's been long overdue. I've got some code I really want to write. It's like on the tip of my tongue. It's called uh, GPT NFT. And the value proposition is that right now people are sharing the results of their chats with screenshots or maybe like an HTML scrape. And what we want to add to that is the cryptographic integrity that we all see with NFTs. So that you could say this was the model version and these are the parameters and here's the prompt. And this is the output with this random seed and with this random seed. And then that allows, you know, anybody just by clicking a button in their browser to archive to Web3 storage that cryptographically verifiable, you know, run of the NFT or of the GPT chat or AI image generation. So kind of by default, it's just bookmarking your cool AI work, right? But doing it correctly. Uh, And the reason why... I think uh, that matters for us to be doing, and it's not just like a fun hack, is that it's aligned with this protocol that we've been developing with a bunch of different companies called UCAN, which is a decentralized authorization protocol, which also cryptographically signs any invocation and receipt. And what that allows you to do is for compute what we've been doing with storage on IPFS. Uh, So Web3 becomes not just um, the, the like strong compute of the Ethereum type smart contract execution, but also like a Lambda compute you can call on more like a resource uh, as well as the storage. And I think that's going to be the future that these applications move to. Hey guys, TiVo here to tell you about the Ufi Video Lock, a smart lock, a 2K camera and a doorbell all in one. That's right, three-in-one for triple the security. It's easy to install. All you need is a Phillips screwdriver, no drilling required. It gives you keyless entry, so no more fumbling your keys when you have your hands full coming back from the grocery store. No more worry about the kids losing a house key. No more worry about a guest losing the house key or forgetting the passcode on your door. And for Airbnbers, it's a no-brainer as you can change the passcode at will between renters. It has available fingerprint recognition, and it has AI self-learning chips, so the more you use it, the more accurate it's going to be. You will have no anxiety with the battery charging. It is a rechargeable battery, and it lasts around four months, but don't worry, when it's low, it'll give you plenty of weeks' notice, and also, it always comes with a physical key as a backup. There's no monthly fee, unlike other brands that charge you a monthly fee to get your backup recorded. They're always recorded locally and you will always have access. Customer support for the Eufy Video Lock is 24-7, so you don't have to worry about any issues you have, and it comes with an 18-month warranty. What I love about this product is it is truly all-in-one with the three-in-one. You don't have to go out and buy multiple parts. It's all in this package with the Eufy Video Lock. So if you're interested in learning more, go on Amazon and search Eufy Video Lock. That's E-U-F-Y Video Lock or visit eufyofficial.com slash video lock. Again, that's E-U-F-Y Video Lock. Eufy Video Lock. Get complete control over your front door. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, 
and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, so we're going to run this podcast through chat GPT at the end, and they'll spit out exactly what you said in a workable using program. That's where we're at now in AI, that you can literally like code by talking. Like We've seen it. It's insane. Yeah, I've been using it for, uh, you know, I, do, I did a lot of reading back in my college days or whatever, and then I get like these ideas in my head, and I want to share them with my kids or like people who haven't read all those books. So I'll have the chat with GPT and then at the end be like, hey, what books should you read if you wanted to know more? And then I'll just archive that and give it to whoever might be interested in talking about political philosophy political philosophy with me or whatever. <laughs> what does the GPT part even mean? I, I, I missed that one. It's a kind of model and I'm not an AI expert, but it's a kind of transformer that knows how to start by reading the whole internet and then read extra special stuff to kind of enrich what how it's going to act and then give back. Like if you've done the thing where you give it a prompt and it gives you an image and it tries to better match, I think on the inside, the way it's working is like, oh, no, no, oh, better, better, better until it kind of like anneals to one that it's going to present to you. I find that running it more than once helps because the output can be dramatically different and they can both be good. Interesting. Yeah, I think there's two pieces of chat GPT that kind of leave me scratching my head right now. One of them is that it wants me to sign up with my phone number, which I absolutely do not want to give to open AI under any circumstances. Uh, least I get death threats from Sam Altman for some of the things I've said about him. Right. You're worried uh, about getting that lawnmower man call. <laughs> geez. Or, and two, uh, it only has data up to 2021. And it only knows how it's to regurgitate the data it's given. It can't like discern things for itself. So it's essentially a very well presented Google search result. So it's still telling you things like masks work and like nonsense like that. So you're like, I don't know about this. Like you were right like 99 times, but the one time it's not right. Uh, it can be catastrophic if you're trusting it to be. So you have to, you still have to use it as like sure. an it's, it's definitely needs like a little subtitle. Like this is for entertainment purposes only. Like this is the AI Miss Cleo. You know, don't it's base your life than decisions around this. It's better yeah. than writer's block, but it's not much better than that. <laughs> yeah, but man, is it, is it really, really amazing to see how far we've come? And they're going to be making another version next year that's what like five hundred times better. What did they say? I mean, it just does that every time. And it, that big, you know, right now, I think it's on model number three or three and a half. When they get to four, you'll see all the existing applications that have been built kind of advance without the person who did the interpretation having to do much rework. They'll just be able to plug the smarter brain in. That's interesting. But all these things are doing is recall. They're still not able to think and discern or make judgments for themselves, which is really telling 
with how advanced they've come in the recall department, but there's still just a huge, huge gap for this thing to actually have like a human consciousness or the ability to actually replace a human in terms of judgment. You know, I studied that, that mathematics in college and like there are papers coming out today. It's turning into a hot topic. As far as I'm concerned, the experience that it is to be a human, you could never put that into a program. Yeah. I really don't think you could from the terms of like government though. Like it'd be amazing to have something as an advisor in your cabinet. that was an AI that you could just say, okay, you know, historically we've had these political conditions or sociological problems, you know, throughout history and all of the different cultures that, you know, what has happened if we do this or what happens if we do this? And it can kind of suggest like the best outcome based on historical trends and happenstance and stuff. So you can at least take that under advisement without giving it the actual red button to push. If you don't have that today, you're already behind. When I see people who have made their workday an AI toolchain, the main thing about them is that they're too busy being productive to share what they're doing with the rest of the community. So when you do see somebody who's sharing, and it's like a diamond in the rough and you've got to learn from them. So many people are just running off on this productivity, you know, um, acceleration. They're, they're too busy to look back or too productive to look back. And I hope that that's what we're offering with Web3 storage on the storage and web development side, right? The ability to create apps so fast that your peers just wonder how you did it. Well, then we're going to bring this podcast to a screeching halt right now and focus on that. What are some applications that we can use in our productivity to accelerate? Because God knows I need help. Right. Well, don't ask me. I think as a developer, on the other hand, what people are doing, let's assume you're using your augmented you know, AI chat um, co-pilot. As a developer, you're going to still want to be on the main line of how people do things. So you're going to be probably building a front end that talks to an API. And in that context, having really clean, well-documented libraries is how companies like ours differentiate ourselves. What kind of things can we store on Web3 today and what's missing? So people are storing a ton of NFTs, video data, notes, basically any public data or any data that you consider safe enough if it's encrypted with like a private key that's held by the end user's wallet. So we have on our blog right now, a case study from a company called OpenLinks. And what they do is like Linktree, but for Web3, where the links page that you create is verifiable because it has a IPFS content hash and you can sign it with your Web3 wallet. So uh, openlinks.io, and it's a really fun team to work with and hang out with at conferences and stuff as well. There's also some really kind of serious use cases. For instance, uh, Starling Lab is working with the Shoah Foundation and Reuters to build software for verifiable photojournalism. And so some of those cameras were first on the ground on January 6th of the Capitol, but the same technology has also been used in Ukraine to record war crimes and package them, the standard of evidence for the world court where they may not be able to get to it for a couple of decades and it has to be cryptographically verifiable. So they're using Web3 for storage uh, because we have the content identifiers and the cryptographic 
APIs using the UCAN protocol for doing uploads. That's amazing, especially since we've seen a lot of footage from Twitter uh, that has later been proven to be like from completely different conflicts and people are just unknowingly passing along the wrong information. So yeah, that, that's they've done, an amazing step forward. They've done some deep digging where they'll go back and find the first tweets at about an event and archive those as well as sending photojournalists out for the aftermath to make sure that, you know, in the midst of all the noise, whatever was true could be found later. That's amazing. I, I think blockchain and news is going to be uh, an incredible thing someday. It's, it's exciting to me to see that other people are already getting started on it. So there's a couple, there's like a few real lighthearted ones like uh, gaming and metaverse where, you know, likes publishing NFTs, publishing metaverse objects benefits a lot from this content addressing because you can put that object into the content delivery network and fetch it from anywhere globally and get it super fast. So anybody who's sharing objects in metaverse worlds and using IPFS is looking at Web3 storage to accelerate that. You mentioned uh, a little bit earlier a couple terms that our listeners might not be familiar with. One of them is Lambda. One of them is Glacier. These are two things that exist in the Amazon Web Services world that do some different things for developers. What elements of Amazon Web Services is still missing in Web3? And I know that's a large question because there's like hundreds of different things that Amazon Web Services does. But what are some of the key components that you still haven't seen yet be replicated? I love this question because it goes back to, if you're in the startup world, this classic blog post where they take the Craigslist front page and then they take it apart and this part is LinkedIn and this part is that. And it's all the startups that came out of you know, kind of one first success. And I think if you imagine that services menu on AWS, which is like identity and access management, storage, compute, renting computers, uh, doing database, all those have Web3 analogs and some of them are more ready for production than others. But like, for instance, the database analog would be the blockchain and we know that's ready for production. And the S3 analog would be IPFS, Filecoin, Web3 storage. And we know that's ready for production. I think where the innovation is right now is in compute. Uh, there's not a clear winner right now outside of the smart contract space. I think a lot of people are still getting their heads wrapped around the idea that you can have verifiable compute that doesn't need to run on a smart contract. From someone who's so locked into all this stuff on the very, very ground floor, do you ever look up and look around at all the different things and people who are you know, building? You mentioned people you're hanging out at conferences and stuff. Like, What does Web3 look like through your lenses when it's like done and production ready? Is it going to look exactly like Web2 now, but just different under the hood? Or we're going to have like a major difference in how we use this? There's a big passion in the developer community for making platforms where the end result application and data is owned by the user. So maybe that's a DAO that does the development of the social network software and another DAO that does the development of the data interchange format. So you might have like five social networks or a Mastodon kind of thing going on um, that are all community governed. And then the data itself can be owned by the end users or by the DAOs, et cetera. And that, what that really means is like, I mean, that's kind of what the grown up apps look like. But in a world where that's what the grown up app looks like, then the weekend hack can just get dropped into that context and, and explode overnight in popularity. So 
you'll see hackathons being like a real place for innovation again. It'll be like more like, you know, 11 people in every city make a cool chat app. And then whichever one's friends happen to be big on TikTok, that's the chat app that kids use next year or whatever. So um, look for that kind of dynamic to show up in social software. Yeah, and I hope it does soon in crypto. I I tried to lead a movement last year to Exodus from Twitter, deleted my Twitter account. It was stolen the next day by a scammer and no one else left with me. Uh, Very, very demoralizing. Now this week we've got Ryan Selkis from Masari, known as 2-Bit Idiot, uh, one of my favorite people and accounts to follow on Twitter, one of the good guys in this space, suspended. For what? We have no idea. Um, but it's absolutely ridiculous. If we as an industry stay on Twitter, um, I, I don't understand why. If For a community who's supposed to be so forward-thinking, forward-acting in tech, we're the biggest hypocrites out of anybody for continuing to use a service like Twitter. What's it going to take to have us finally sign up for a decentralized social account, whether it's on DSO or lens protocol or one of these other things. And finally say enough is enough getting the hell out of here. I think these are always happy accidents. It's going to be something we wouldn't predict. Like Snapchat invented the big swipe, you know, Um, and they were able to ride that wave for a while, but now everybody does that. So it's going to be somebody in one of those dozens of chat programs or whatever comes up with, a way where I'm guessing everybody feels really chill about using the chat program, but like drop in a link to the stuff they care about on Twitter or whatever, right? Like kind of bootstrap it. And I don't mean like Facebook or whatever centralized place. So for them, it'll be like, I made this cool world. Let me share it with my normie friends. Um, And like, eventually that'll drain into the cool world, I guess. But um, I couldn't tell you more than that. Makes sense to me. I think the biggest problem still in terms of quote unquote production ready is a security like blockchain works. Um, but a lot of these things in smart contracts, especially solidity where you can clearly read the code uh, is just overlooked and just the tiniest little error can lead to hundreds of millions of dollars being lost. How do we as an industry better address security risks both from a developer and an investor standpoint? I think it's going to make a big difference when we take the wallet experience to the next level of human factors. So a wallet that is like touch ID, passkey enabled, or has um, like a knob for how paranoid you want to be so that you can start out with something that does all the best practices for you in a way you don't have to think about. And then you could turn it up if you want to, you know, attach it to your ledger or something. But if you have good human factors in walleting, then you won't have beginners using advanced wallets and making mistakes. And I don't know if that'll solve the smart contract side, but it will solve people's key management, which is, I think, still the biggest thing keeping the next billion people out of Web3. Yeah. I hope that it happens at some point. We definitely need a better way just to store seed phrases uh, that aren't going to get lost or compromised. And that really hasn't Mm -hmm. been anything that I've seen addressed yet. So if you're worried that you're late to the party, uh, the punch is barely being poured right now. 
<laughs> that's a long, correct. long way to go. Um, so one of the cool things about that, that touch ID, face ID, pass key stuff is that it uses non-extractable key pairs. It just makes you bite the bullet. There is no key phrase. And you have to use a multi-sig type delegation authority. And then you have to do it right. And then it becomes something that humans know. Like, oh, I'm down to two phones. And they start to get nervous on it, you know? Yeah, exactly. Uh, speaking of all that, I was actually watching a lot of documentaries this past weekend about the mob, uh, whether it was the Italian mob in New York in the 70s or the Yakuza in Japan. Uh, really wanted to study these countercultures and not so much what they stood for, but how they got rid of them. And what it was, it was regulation. They simply made it illegal for a lot of these guys to own a bank account, to buy a car, to have a phone, just the basic necessities in life. They got blocked from, uh, they made it illegal to give money to these organizations. So if you're a, a mobster trying to hustle down a shop, the shop owner would literally go to prison if they gave you money. So it put everyone in a, a tight crunch and eventually these organizations just crumbled. Uh, and I thought that was fascinating. Versus, I mean, that was what happened to the Yakuza. The mob in, in New York, they just did, you know, tons of surveillance. They were able to prove there was conspiracy. What they found is these guys controlled everything, mostly legitimate businesses. But it was a few illegitimate and violent crimes that they were able to bring everything down on. But it was through passing laws and regulations simply because they didn't like that. Basically, a group of individuals had outsmarted everyone else. Uh, that was 99% of it. Yes, there was a 1% of it that was violence and murder. Maybe 2 or 3%. I don't know. I wasn't alive then. But they leveled the playing field through passing laws. Here in crypto, we've seen life-changing gains that were never possible before for any other sector of people, legal or illegal. Um, and that hasn't sat well with a lot of the status quo that want to stay that way. And now we've been hearing, you know, there's coming regulations for this, that, and the other. Do you think DeFi and crypto and peer-to-peer -peer technology is in any way in danger of being regulated into oppression? It's a I, think it's, I think it's a good question to ask at a time when there is regulatory interest in a way that there hasn't been in a while. And it's also... Maybe the first time in crypto when it's been easier, at least for folks on the inside, to make the distinction between the frauds and the genuine projects. For a long time in purely a growth market, it's sometimes hard to tell. So we may now have a better perspective on that. I personally think that it's projects like archiving journalistic data with you know, cryptographic integrity standards um, that are able to show that there's a benefit to this beyond just the financial um, engineering. And so it's there's NFTs are a really great story, right? On the episode that you hosted, you were talking about how uh, NFTs are so popular with consumer brands. And I think the reason for that is also because you can uh, onboard folks to crypto verbs, but using fiat, you know, rails that the your customers are familiar with. 
So yeah, the mainstream of crypto is probably going to be what shakes out of whatever, you know, regulatory questioning comes along now. But I think when you do look at the projects that are working that have figured out the regulatory environment for themselves and, you know, done it in good faith, you can look at regulatory successes already. You don't need to change the law much to accommodate them. I would say you're absolutely right that you don't need to change the law, but there's still a lot of people that are lawmakers um, who still think Bitcoin is used only for like dealing drugs and hiring hits on the internet. Uh, we've seen some of the first drafts of their proposed laws just way, way, way overbearing. Like they're, I mean, and then there's the arrest and still uh, captive uh, tornado cash developer. You know, since when was writing code uh, an act of terrorism? You've got a guy like Sam Bankman Freed who literally wasted $30 billion of consumer money. Uh, he gets out on bail, and a guy who's writing DeFi code gets none. Uh, right, and ridiculous. I don't know about you. I'll have I'll have one of those weekends sometimes where I wake up on Monday morning. What happened? And there's code. Like I don't want to have to worry about that. <laughs> yeah, it, it's just insane. Um, so hopefully, 2023 makes a little bit more sense than last year. Um, personally, I'm an optimist despite uh, everything going on. But you know, progress is the result of struggle. And if you don't participate in that struggle, the progress is going to be a lot slower. So with that said, I got one closing question for you. And if it's someone who's just trying to get into the crypto space now, in the beginning of 2023, what are some words of wisdom that you can share with them? I think it's a great time for builders. I started my last startup in the 2008 slump. And coming out of that, it represents resilience and dedication and vision on the part of people who are starting projects. So if you're a builder, you're in the perfect timing to muscle through the first few months of your project and then start thinking about fundraising. Because as we hit that upswing again, the smart money is going to be in first. Well said. Guys, if you have a dream, get to building. All right. And uh, where can we follow you uh, on Twitter? Is it just Jay Chris? I'm Jay Chris on Twitter and GitHub and a few other places. So look for me around the internet. Fantastic. Jay Chris, Web3 Storage. Thank you so much for spending the last half hour with us. We really appreciate it. And we will be back very, very soon with another great guest here on the Crypto 101 podcast. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.